Well, good morning, church. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, if you will. We'll find ourselves in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. I trust God will work in our hearts and guide us and lead us. I do want to, as I often encourage you, to have a copy of God's Word open. This morning, we're going to repeatedly come back to it. We're just going to learn what God has to say to us from His Word, and so it'll be helpful for you to see it in the Scripture. So I do think it would aid you in, in listening to the sermon if you do have God's word open, as we consider it this morning, we'll be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Hear now the word of God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put away them all, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word in which we can consider now. Father, I pray that because your people gathered here this morning to hear from you through the power of your indwelling spirit that you would indeed sanctify us in truth. For your word is truth, as our Lord prayed. Father, there are, there are people here, Christians here, who are not putting to death their sin. There are people gathered here today that are playing with sin, and coddling sin, and placating sin, negotiating with sin. And I pray, we pray, I trust that you would do a great work in their lives, and in our lives, that we would, as your scripture says, put it to death. That we would seek out the sin in our life, hunt it down, and that we would kill it without mercy. Will you help us today? We, we need your help. We need you to guide us and to convict us and to lead us and strengthen us. And so we plead with you today. We want to become more like Jesus. Help us, even as you have mercy on us through Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was on April 26th in the year 2003 that Aaron Ralston, the author of the book Between a Rock and a Hard Place, was hiking alone in Canyonlands National Park. He writes in his book, the bottom of a slot canyon is a very intimate place. I was about 100 feet down in a canyon about 3 feet wide seven miles away from my car, and 30 miles from the nearest paved road. The sky wasn't even visible. All that I could see was the light bouncing off the sandstone. It was during this a descent down in this slot canyon that Aaron Ralston dislodged an 800-pound boulder, which fell upon his right hand, pinning it to the canyon wall. As he waited for help, he rationed his remaining 12 ounces of water and the small amount of food he had 
while trying to free his arm. He first tried to chip away at the rock, at the boulder, and then at the wall, but found no success there. He then tried to budge the boulder with his climbing gear, but that also failed. A day passed with no progress and no help, then a second, and then a third. And on the third day, his food and water ran out. So the dehydrated and delirious Ralston decided he needed to cut off his arm. He, of course, ran into another problem once he thought of that. He, he said, he writes in his book, I knew right away that one option was to cut off my arm, and on the third day I tried. But when I hit the bone, the knife wouldn't go through. I was stuck. He therefore prepared for death. He writes, I surrendered. I've been trapped for 120 hours. I knew I wasn't going to make it through that night. He videotaped his goodbyes to his family on his cell phone. He carved his name, his date of birth, and the presumed date of death on the sandstone canyon wall next to his body, April 30th, 2003. He awoke the next morning. The epitaph was wrong. He was terribly irritated that he had to cut out April 30th and there carve May 1st, 2003. And while he was carving May 1st, it hit him. Though he could not break, uh, cut his bone, he could break it. And so he did. Leveraging the arm against the rock, he snapped the bone in his forearm. And then he remembered to his great dismay that there are two bones in the forearm. He then broke the other, cleaned through, cut through the remaining skin, muscle, and tissue and nerves with his multi-tool, which included a two-inch dull knife. The manufacturer of the multi-tool has never been revealed, but Ralston said, quote, it was not a Leatherman, but what you get if you bought a $15 flashlight and they give you a free multi-tool. After freeing himself, he rappelled down a 65-foot cliff, hiked for four hours, where he was discovered by a vacationing family. Over 127 hours, Aaron Ralston lost 40 pounds, including 25% of his blood volume. Aaron Ralston cut off his arm to save his life. Our Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to be thrown into the eternal fire. Now let's be clear, Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation. This is not literal a literal exhortation. This is a metaphor. The metaphor, of course, is that Jesus is explaining to us here in Matthew 18 and Matthew 5 as well, is that we need to get radical in our opposition to sin. We need, if you will, to kill our sin. It was the Puritans who coined the, the phrase, the mortification of the flesh. John Owen, in his classic book in 1656, would write, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. One of the texts in which Owen would appeal to would be Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Kill your sin. As I mentioned last week, we're, we find ourselves here in Colossians 3 and really the, the ethical section of the book of Colossians. Where there's one command after another. Uh, commands to guide us in the Christian life. And so we're reminded, even as we study uh, Colossians 3, that Christianity is not simply I get to live forever. That Christianity is instead, I now have a new life, and I'm now living in a new kingdom, and I now have a new Lord, and yes, I will live forever with him. 
And yet that Lord in this life has claims upon us. And he gives us direction and guidance. And he has commands to follow. And many of those commands are found here in Colossians chapter 3. Commands of what we should do. And commands of what we should say. And even commands of what we should desire. We'll find commands on how we might treat one another. How we might interact with the church. Commands for the home. Commands in the workplace. All found, by the way, here in Colossians 3. Today we find the command that we need to kill our sin, put it to death. We find two lists of those sins. Uh, each list contains five different sins. Verse 5 has five of them, and then verse 8 has five of them. So we're given uh, uh, this exhortation, given to us twice, to put this, our sin to death or to put it away. And then we're given three reasons why we ought to kill our sin. And so we might think of these four verses as the what and the why of Christian obedience. The what and the why. And so I would like to outline this passage by simply using a sentence, if I might. Uh, I would say that we might summarize this, this sentence, and this will guide us through our study this morning. Put to death your sin, that's point number one, because, three becauses, an awareness of coming judgment, an embrace of the new life, and an affection for the Lord Jesus. So let's begin by thinking about putting to death our sin. I will forewarn you, this will be my longest point, if you're keeping time once again this morning. Uh, you'll note we'll spend a bulk of our time here thinking about putting to death our sin. He says that there in verse 5, you know, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he uses a different metaphor in verse 8, but the, the idea is the same, I think. But now you must also, excuse me, but now you must put them all away. Put them away. Put away your sin. It's almost like Paul is telling us to kind of take off our sin like it's an old garment, it's a, it's a dirty clothes, that we need to remove this. It's not fitting for us anymore. Uh, you, you wake up in the morning, just as you did this morning, and you think about what you're going to do this, this day, and then you dress uh, appropriate for the activity for the day. So if, if you're going to go split wood, you're going to dress differently than, than if you're going to work. Or if you're going on a date, you'll dress differently. If you're going on, on, on a hike, if you're just going to hang out in the house, you'll dress differently than if you're going to go to church. So you think about, what am I going to do today? And then I'm going to wear a, a certain set of clothes that are going to help me accomplish that task, or at least are fitting for those tasks. And I think what Paul's here asking us, and he'll do so again in Colossians 3, is what kind of behavior ought a Christian to wear if they are to meet with Christ? How should we look, how should we act if demonstrate that we have an allegiance to Christ. Put these things away. Of course, we've seen the, the more, I think, aggressive metaphor there in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Paul tells us here to hunt down our sin and kill it. For the sin in our life is the enemy of our soul. It is the enemy of our family. It's the enemy of God. And we must put it to death. We must not coddle it. We must not play with it. We must not entertain it. We must not negotiate with it. It is an enemy to die. If someone came up to you and said, listen, uh, I, I would like to destroy your marriage. I would like to uh, destroy all the trust that your wife has in you or all the trust that your husband has in you. I would like to bring her to utter ruin and uh, bring her to great sorrow and despair. What would you say to such a person? Come on in. But just, just behave yourself, maybe? Just stay, you stay in this corner over here? No, such a person is your enemy. You do not play with such a person. You do not entertain such a person. You do not negotiate with such a person. You turn on such a person. You, you, you get away from such a person. You see what the Bible is telling us? Such is our sin. 
sin is your enemy. And therefore we are to put it to death. What sins should we put to death? Well, I mentioned he gives us ten different sins in two different verses. Please understand this is not exhaustive. These are not all the sins. But you notice the two that he deals with. The first list, as I mentioned, is found here in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And here they are, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You notice this first list of sin has much to do with sexual sin. And I, I think perhaps you can't get a more appropriate list of sins for our day. It seems like sex, sexuality, sensuality seems to be everywhere. It's flaunted. It's in your face. I, 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 you, you can't get away from it. You, if you want to watch TV, you can't get away from it. Uh, have, you, have you seen a perfume commercial recently? I mean, I don't even know what, it's like erotic spray they're sp selling. I have no idea what's going on except half-naked people running around shooting bows and arrows into the sky. And it's all, I mean, it's just sensuality everywhere in our culture. And you, and you think, okay, we live in a sexually charged day, and we do. But please understand, so did Paul. Perhaps even more so. There was no expectation, for instance, for a, for a husband to be sexually faithful to his wife in this culture. It was zero. In fact, we understand that the, we don't use this word often much uh, in our day, but we used to use it. There's a word called chastity. You know that word? It, it is a virtue uh, of the Christian faith, and it was unique in Paul's day. Like they had no idea, what is this chastity? We don't understand this. It was, it was utterly, uh, extraordinarily radical for them. And this is, of course, what Paul is arguing for us. Radical in our day as well. So he says, of course, put to death their sexual morality. So let me just be very clear here. Sexual immorality. Any sexual activity outside the covenant of a marriage between a man and a woman is sin. That is a rebellion against God. Now, if you're visiting with us here this morning and you think, man, these Christians, this all they this repressed, this is all, all they talk about, uh, you, you, you may not be aware. I know it's not all we talk about. This is just the passage in front of us, and we're just preaching through this book. And so what does the Bible say? And it certainly says this, that we are to put away sexual immorality. And so I want to be very clear here in case we need to be clear here. I hope we don't, but, but I don't want to be unclear. In particular, I want to speak to the teenagers here today. I want to speak to the college students here today. I want to speak to the single people here today. I want to speak to the married people here today. Please understand that sexual activity outside of marriage is a rebellion against God. It is a sin. In particular, those of you who have yet to be married, you are to be a virgin until you are married. And in case you might think, that sounds pretty out of date. In case you might think, listen, being a virgin's foolishness. The world's going to think I'm an idiot. My friends are going to think I'm a fool. Well, let me welcome you to the Christian faith. Because if you, you want to be thought of popular and with it and, and, and cool and with the times, you have chosen the wrong religion. For our Lord Jesus was thought of as a fool. He was thought of as an idiot. And they killed him, and we are to be followers of Christ. We are to do what he calls us to do and live like he has shown us to live. And so, yes, I will be gladly be thought of a fool as a world if that means I can be with Jesus. And just be clear, God is not against sex. God created sex. God rejoices in sex. 
He thinks it's a wonderful thing for he made it for us in the context of, of an intimate and pleasure-seeking and caring and self-giving relationship between a husband and a wife. Any desire or activity of sexuality comes from God and it is rightly expressed within that relationship. When it is outside that relationship, it is a sin. We ought to kill it. It is an enemy. Secondly, you notice, and thirdly and fourthly, I'm just going to group these together for time's sake. Sex, uh, impurity, passion, evil desires. Maybe your translation where it says passion says lust. This is when we begin to think of another person as an object, not as an image bearer worthy of our respect and love and care. An image bearer of God. We begin to think of people as a physical thing that exists for our pleasure. Listen, the world is screaming at you constantly. Do whatever you want to do. That is the mantra of our day. If it brings you pleasure, it brings you delight, if this is what you identify as, then you embrace it. Our day lives for self-expression. It lives for self-identity. It, 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 it lives uh, for seeking, uh, being true to yourself. Right? There's this common theme in our society that do whatever you want as long as it brings you pleasure and doesn't harm anybody else. Nothing is off limits. So this should be clear. Christianity does not offer us unchained liberty to do whatever we want. It rather counsels us to live out of a, a life of loving responsibility and care for another person. And so we need to put off these sins. We need to put them to death. In particular, it seems to me that pornography is an epidemic in our day. Let me just speak to you once again very clearly. Pornography is an enemy to your soul. And it is an enemy to your contentment. And it is an enemy to your wife. And it, or it's an enemy to your husband. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, can a man scoop fire into his lap without being burned? How many people think they're doing some harmless little sin of viewing pornography? In reality, they are heaping burning coals into their lap that will burn them, that will scar them, that will change you. It is not harmless. It is a sin and it is to be put to death. You ought to kill it. You ought to. Some of you need to get help killing it. Sin thrives in the darkness. It has power in secrecy. You remove its power by talking to a brother or a sister or a pastor or a community group leader and saying, listen, I'm struggling with this sin. Will you help me? You expose it to light and Christian fellowship and you will find that its claws that are dug so deep into you begin to loosen in your life. Paul lastly says that we need to put to death covetousness, which is an odd, odd sin and conclusion of these sexual sins, isn't it? Perhaps Paul lists covetousness here because it has the same root, this, this idea of self-indulgence. Some have suggested that we might get to the age where sexual drive has been replaced by greed. And so once we are giving ourselves to sexuality or sensuality, now we're giving ourselves to, to money. I appreciate what one author says when he wrote, materialism is the true religion of thousands of confessing Christians. There is a sense in which covetousness is even more dangerous than sensuality because it has so many respectable forms. So often it's the successful covetous person whom we honor. As the proverb goes, if a man is drunk with wine, we kick him out of the church. If he is drunk with money, we make him a deacon. Okay. All right, present deacons excluded, of course. Okay. Okay. Greed is your enemy. 
you ought to kill her. Notice what Paul says, that little tag there is an interesting, which is idolatry. I think that's especially helpful, which is idolatry. Of course, the question is, is what's idolatry? Is it covetousness or is it the entire list there? You read in Ephesians 5, there's a very parallel verse. We don't have time to look at it, but it, but it seems to imply that the idolatry is not just a reference to the covetousness, but, but all of these sins. It's, they're all idolatry. And if you need a wonderful book to read, I would recommend to you Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods. It's been so helpful in my life. Uh, the book is about, it talks about the idolatry that so many of us struggle with. And Keller explains that an idol is simply just a functional saver. An idol is a, your real master. The idol is the real Lord whom you serve. And it's, you might be able to discover the idols in your life that you're struggling with if you think about the things that if you lost them, it would ruin your life. Right? If you lost it, you wouldn't want to live, or, or, or life wouldn't be worth living. That's an idol. Right? It might be finances, it might be family, it might be your professional identity, it might be your prestige, it might be security, it might be relationships. These are the things that give you security, they give you meaning, they, they give you a future, they make your life worth living. Or you might think about the opposite. What, makes you, what causes you to blow your top? Right? What, what causes you to be filled with grief and worry and fear? Those emotions reveal your idols as well. In fact, if you, if you ever happen to come to me for counsel, and to be perfectly honest, I'm not, I'm not a very good counselor. Um, I'm not just saying that because I don't want you all to flood to my door. I think that's what she's laughing at uh, over there. But, uh, and I say I'm not a good counselor because I, always, I, I do the same thing with every person I counsel. We try to find, we go idol hunting. That's all, that, it doesn't matter what it is. And we just begin to ask questions. We begin to dig down deep. And we, we ask questions like, well, wh wh you got angry at your kids. Wh why, why, why is anger, why of all the emotions that you could have chose, why did you choose anger? Why not grief? Why not, why not concern? Why not compassion? Why anger is a protecting emotion. What are you trying to protect here? We just try to dig down to find where the idols are in our life. And I think this is, I mentioned this is especially helpful because, listen, you, you get these lists of sins and you think, okay, well, it's just, it's just another list of laws. It's just, okay, here's, an, here's a more list that, that we're just going to just keep, the rules keep coming. This is far more than just simply doing a list of sins. I don't want you to simply hear law. I don't want you to simply hear thou shalt not, you know, lust. That's not what's going on here. This, Paul is saying, listen, these things rise up in your life because you have idols in your heart. And ultimately, we need to make Jesus Christ our treasure. He needs to be the Lord. He needs the one who gives us meaning and security and identity. And so it's helpful for us to identify the idols in our life in order that we might put them to death. Of course, Paul has another list, doesn't he, here in verse 8. He says, but now you must put them all away. And here's the five sins here. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. You see, this, all, this theme is all about anger, isn't it? And anger seems to be expressed in many different ways. Sometimes anger blows up, doesn't it? This is maybe like a, an atomic anger that is a bomb and destroys all the relationships around. Perhaps that's Paul's reference there to wrath. Maybe your translation says rage. Please understand once again that rage destroys. Wrath destroys the relationship between parent and child. Wrath destroys marriages. And it, it, is, it, it is in folly we are actually ruining the things that are most valuable into our lives, the, the relationships that we have. Sometimes anger is cold. We refuse to talk. 
we stew on malicious thoughts, and Paul says, put away malice. Sometimes anger is subtle. We a little snipe here and there, a little, little fire from the cover of trees, just a little shot. Make nasty comments, defame character, a little slander. Paul says, put away slander. And lastly, he says, put away obscene talk from your mouths. Now, I don't think Paul's simply referring to cursing, though I, though I think he is referring to cursing. I think far more he's referring to abusive language, that our words bring fear and division, not protection and intimacy. We're to put those things away. I've been blessed by the story of the 1904 Welsh Revival, uh, when, when about 150,000 people came to faith in Christ in the nation of Wales in 1904 and 1905. Many of them were coal miners who were said to be some of the most foul-mouthed people on earth. One historian writes of the, revi the revival saying, soul winning spread through the coal mines and profane swearing stopped. Productivity in the mines increased and even the pit ponies were confused by the change in their master's behavior as coaxing replaced cursing. If you're given to anger and rage, let me exhort you with love in my heart, for God's sake, and for your marriage's sake, and for your children's sake, and for your sake, kill that sin. It is your enemy. And please do not do, as so many have, just shrug their shoulders and say, that's just the way I am, just an angry person. Listen, just the way I am is one of the most anti-Christian phrases you could ever utter. Because if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So let's stop messing around with the stupid excuses, and let's actually get serious about these things in our life. And once again, I counsel you, find help if you struggle with anger. And you say, oh, I'll, I'll handle it. I can handle it. Really? How long have you been saying, I can handle it? How many years have you been rehearsing that? Okay, I'll get on top of it this time. How many decades have you been saying, oh, this time I'm serious, I'll handle it. You need help. It's why we have the church. It's not simply to sit in pews with face masks on once one hour a week. Okay? It is to be a community to one another that we might fight for one another in righteousness. You need to turn on it. You need to kill it. You need to jump on it and, and, and get rid of it in your life. And yet so many seem to want to manage their sin and they want to take the gradual approach with their sin. I appreciate the honesty that St. Augustine uh, offered when he admitted praying, God give me chastity, but not yet. Okay. Right? I think that's how we often operate. Yes, I want that, but I'm not really serious about getting it. I've been so helped by C.S. Lewis's writings, as you know, and one of my favorite uh, books in which Lewis has written was, is The Great Divorce. And, and it's a wonderful book. It's a, it's a story, if you will. It's fiction, so be careful with building all your theology on fiction. But there's a story of, of what Lewis calls ghosts, which are people who have died outside of Christ and are in hell. He calls them ghosts. And they take a bus ride uh, to the out, just, just outside of heaven. And there they meet these angels. And the angels try to persuade the ghosts to enter into heaven. Okay? That's the context. This might help you. I think uh, this reading from The Great Divorce might be illuminating for us. For Lewis writes, I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder, a little red lizard. And it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ears. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that I could hardly look at him. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. 
Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, here he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course his stuff won't do here, I realize that. But he won't stop. I shall have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit angel. Said the flaming spirit and angels, I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Ooh, ah, look out, you're burning me, keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because it's so damned embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There's no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Look, it's gone to sleep. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I think the gradual approach will be far better than killing it. The gradual approach is no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think that over. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling well today. It would be silly to do it now. I need to be in good health for such an operation some other day, perhaps. I wonder how many of you take such an approach to sin. Yeah, I want it dead, but some other day, perhaps. I'll take the gradual approach. I'm telling you by the authority of God's word that your sin is not something to be managed. It is something to be killed. And I wonder what needs to be killed in your life. What do you need to pay attention to? I hope God's word would just even do a work in your life now, convicting you and empowering you. Perhaps one of these sins in particular has identified itself to your heart. I would encourage you, perhaps the best way to kill these sins is, is not by simply focusing on the sin, but by focusing on its opposite. If you're given to slander, Perhaps the best way to get rid of slander is not trying to stop being crude, but aiming to build up others. If you're given to anger, perhaps the best way to overcome anger is to seek to be gentle and tender. If you're given to greed, perhaps the best way to overcome materialism is to seek to delight in what God has given you. What might do best to kill our sin by seeking its opposite? And of course, Paul tells us three reasons why we must. And it's here I think we actually will find the power to do so. We find these like, Three massive theological locomotives that pull these ten, ten train cars of commands along the tracks to Christian maturity. Paul tells us that we should put to death our sin because of an awareness of coming judgment. For you read in verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? You, you kind of read that and you think, well, this might be, we should put away these sins in order to avoid God's wrath. Right? And so is this what Paul is saying? Do you think this is what Paul is saying? Get, get rid of these sins because you fear the wrath of God. I would suggest to you we need to be careful here. We need to read this very carefully because I do not think that is what Paul is teaching. I do not think that Paul is using the fear of judgment as a motivation for you, Christian, to reform your ways. Now, ju God's judgment is coming. I don't know how you can read verse 6 and believe the Bible and think it's not. On account of these things, uh, the wrath of God is coming. That's pretty clear. 
And what we, what we see here is that we see that, that God hates sin, doesn't he? Your father hates these things. These things are ruining his world. These things are damaging and destroying what he loves, and therefore he hates it. And he will judge it. And he will judge those who persist in it. And yet for us, we have been forgiven of these things by God's grace. And so we've seen this many times in the book of Colossians, have we not? We rejoice in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we do not, as Christians, fear the coming wrath of God. We do not, therefore, obey God out of a fear of this wrath. And yet what we learn here in verse 6 is the heart of our Father hates these things. He is going to judge these things. He's going to pour out his wrath on these things. And that should be a great motivation for us to actually long to seek after obedience. I've mentioned to you uh, many times, I'm sure you're getting sick of me talking about it, but I built my kids a tree house, okay? I have to pull illustrations from somewhere, so hopefully this will be okay. It is a large building. It is two and a half stories tall in three trees with three different decks on it. It took me three years to build. It is a monument to my foolishness, in fact, okay? <laughs> It was, it was way too big, and yet my kids love it, and I therefore love it because my kids love it, and they're, they're in it all the time. And so it brings me great delight that they're able to use it, and my labors have been a blessing to them. But let's say I found termites in the treehouse. I, I would say that the, uh, my, put it this way, the wrath of Stephen is going to come upon the termites, right? Because the termites are destroying this beautiful gift in which I have made for my children. Now, what if my, one of my ch children uh, was, uh, was out in the woods and they find a, a log and they find it filled with termites, okay? And they think, I'll bring this into the treehouse, okay? Would, would, the, would the my wrath now come upon my children? Well, we would have a difficult conversation, no doubt, but my wrath's not going to come upon them. They're my children. But the question would be that I want to know is if you know daddy hates these things, you know that these things are actually destroying daddy's labor to give you something good. Why then would you invite them into that place? I think that's what Paul is saying here. Can you really keep doing the things that God hates so much? I mean, this activity is at enmity to God. It, God does not treat it lightly. God's wrath is coming upon it. And so it seems almost the exhortation is, Christian, why don't you start early why don't you begin to pour out your wrath upon these sins in your life that you would kill it? God hates it so much that Jesus died for it. God hates it so much that the Father was willing to punish Jesus for it. Of course, that's the very core of what we believe. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into this world, became a man. We think he uh, existed from eternity past. He created this world and yet became part of it in order to live a perfect life in our place. And then he went to the cross and he died there as our substitute. He took on the wrath of God that is coming, uh, uh, that was coming upon us and it was poured out upon Jesus himself. And then three days later, he rose bodily, historically, physically from the dead, appearing to over 500 people in order to prove his claims are true and pave a way for us through death. And now he stands there in heaven as the Lord of heaven and earth and calls for all people to bow their knee to him in repentance and faith. And the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this wrath right here 
that is coming. The wrath of God is coming. And unless you repent and trust in Christ, it will come on you. And so I offer you today forgiveness from God himself. Not by turning over your life, starting a new leaf, not even by doing the things that he commands, but by simply bowing your knee and saying, Jesus, I believe, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you will be lavished with grace. And yet, Christian, as we think about these things, does it not make you hate it? Does it not make you say, I don't want to have any part of this? Every day you are to remember the gospel, who you are in Christ, what Christ has done for you. And I will tell you, beware if you say, God hates anger, and God hates sexual morality, and God hates obscene talk and all the rest, but I don't really care. I don't. What does that say about you and the genuineness of your faith? Scripture tells us that your devotion to Jesus is not simply agreeing with the truth claims found in the Bible. The devil believes this book. That your devotion to Jesus is not simply seen in your fervency of singing or your, your diligent service at church. It is in doing what God tells you to do. For Scripture tells us that God has said, I desire obedience, not sacrifice. Jesus has told us twice in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will, what is it, Christian? You will obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Put to death your sin because of an awareness of coming judgment. Secondly, put to death uh, your sin because of an embrace of new life. For he writes in verse 7, does he not? In these, you too once walked. Right? You once did these things. This is what you were like when you were living in them. This is what you used to do, Paul tells us. But you're different now. You're a new person now. You've changed now. These don't fit to you anymore. Your children ever find those, those old pictures of you, right? And, and they, they say things like, what in the world are you wearing? Okay. Did you used to wear these things in the olden days? Okay. Okay. My, my kids have, have, have allegedly found a, picture, a little, uh, old picture of me holding a soccer ball, which, of course, is terribly embarrassing. And I believe illegal, because I don't think you're allowed to touch the ball with your hands. I'm not, I'm not up on the rules. But if I, if I ever find that picture, I will destroy it, by the way. Okay. It's embarrassing. Okay. You, know, you kids look at those pictures. can't believe you wore that. I don't, I don't know. When I was in middle school, a very popular fashion trend, uh, at least out in California, was what we called hammer pants. Did you ever wear those? Parachute pants. Like the pants were, has like six times too much fabric. I had, I, 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 had, I had parachute pants that were black uh, with fluorescent green lizards on them. <laughs> I, I wore those out of the house, believe it or not. Yeah. I thought they were cool. Right? 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 Your, kids, your kids see these pictures, and they look at the, what you wore, and they, they say, you used to wear that? What, why don't you wear that anymore? Because it's ridiculous. It doesn't fit. You see what Paul is saying? These behaviors are what you used to do. Why would you go back and put them on? 
They don't fit anymore. That anger towards your children, that's out of date. Right, that slander and impurity, that doesn't have a place here anymore. It's not that it's impossible, it just doesn't, it's not who you are anymore. Paul says in Romans 6, how shall we who have died to sin still live in it? How, how have we who died to malice still live in it? How shall we who have died to sexual uh, uh, immorality still live in it? How shall we who have died to bitterness and hostility still live in it? You're different now. You used to do those things. But not now. Look what he says in verse 8. But now. Right? This is what you were. Verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Now you have to take them off. They don't belong to you anymore. They don't fit you anymore. Put to death your sin. Because you've embraced the new life that Christ has died to secure for you. Lastly, put to death to sin because of an affection for Jesus, a love for Jesus. Look back at verse 5 one more time. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. One little word I want to point out there, it's the word therefore. See it? Put to death, therefore. In other words, Paul's directing us to what he had just said previously. So in light of what I just said, you should put these things to death. So what did he just say? We'll look up in verse, chapter 3, verse 1. You have been raised with Christ, or since you have been raised with Christ, some translations put it, seek the things that are above. For Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of earth. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so what, Paul, what is Paul saying? He's saying because you've died, in Christ, that's verse 3, because you've been raised, that's verse 1, because you've been united to Christ, that's verse 3, because you're going to be glorified when Christ returns, because of these things, therefore, put to death your sin. So Once again, Paul appeals to our identity, who we are. I, I, I just want to hammer this home as we conclude. It's not simply another list. This is not simply, thou shalt not have malice. This is not what's happening here. He is saying, you need to become the people that God has made you to be. Become what you are. You belong to God. You're his son. You're his daughter. He loves you. He's raised you. He's coming for you. He's seated you there in heaven with him. You're hidden with Christ. And so begin to live like that. In fact, he says, as we saw last week, we should therefore set our minds on Christ and think about what he's done and who he is and what he is doing and what he will do. We ought to, therefore, once we fill our minds with truths about Christ, we ought to command and, and seek to have our hearts follow him. Verse 2, set your hearts on things of Christ. We see what he's saying is put your affection on Jesus. Therefore, when your affection is on Christ, therefore, you may put to death the sin in your life. And I mentioned this to you last week. I think I'll probably mention it in every sermon in Colossians 3. It's here, right here, is the battle of the Christian life. This is the battle of the Christian life. It starts here. It is the exhortation in verse 2 to set your hearts on Jesus. Because you will only truly find the power to kill the sin in your life by a superior delight in Jesus. By setting your hearts on Jesus. Right? You understand you don't sin out of duty. No one feels a duty to sin. So why do you do it? Because sin offers you a superior pleasure. 
than obedience. It tries to convince you that there's more delight in the rebellion than in obedience. It offers you a pleasure, and you embrace it out of, out of seeking after pleasure, out of a delight. So how do you conquer that? You can only conquer a delight with a superior delight. So if you, if you say, well, there's delight in sexual morality, but I have a duty to God, right? What's going to win? Delight or duty? I mean, you may hold out for a week or two, but ultimately delight is always going to trump duty. It's always going to win. So what do we do? We need a greater delight. We need to set our hearts on Jesus. Right? The, the college student who delights to sleep into 1 p.m., and I know no Patrick Henry student wants that, but, but uh, you know, the college students where I went, right, they sleep into one. I don't know what happens when you go to college, you become nocturnal, and you, you sleep into one, and you find great delight in that. You hate the early morning. That college student decides, I'm going to go jogging at 6 a.m. every morning. Okay? That's a big commitment. How is he going to maintain that commitment? Well, he might have a duty to a healthy lifestyle, or there might be a young lady who also jogs at 6 a.m. What, what's going to help him persevere in this new resolution? Is it the duty or is it the superior delight? I who once delighted in sleeping into 1 p.m. now I've found a superior delight and it's Sally over here or whatever it is. Okay? See, the, listen, we need a new pleasure in order to conquer the old pleasures of sin. Christianity is not simply about willpower. It's not about try harder. It's not about moralism. It's not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's, I'm going to do it this time. It is finding a greater delight in Christ. Set your hearts on Jesus. And Thomas Chalmers, about 200 years ago, he wrote about this, and it was so helpful. He wrote about, and I know this is dated language, but try to follow me, the expulsive power of new affections. The expulsive power of new affections. Chalmers wrote, and it has not been improved on, I quote him, Idols cannot be uprooted. They can only be replaced. We only cease to be a slave of one appetite because another taste has brought it into subordination. A youth may cease to idolize sensual pleasure and partying because, because it is only because the idol of material gain has gotten the ascendancy. Right? I used to like uh, partying, but now I'm after money. Right? I have a new love in my heart. He continues... But there is not one personal transformation in which the heart is not left without an object of beauty and joy. The heart's desire for one particular object may be conquered, but the heart's desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way, he concludes, to displace one affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Your heart is always going to find delight in something. And that is going to guide you. That's why Paul and throughout scripture we're told to set our affections on Christ. To set our hearts on Christ where in heaven. That we might find a deeper joy and a deeper delight in Jesus. That's where you're going to find the power over this sin. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of Ulysses. Who after the Trojan War, uh, his long journey sailing home takes him years and he faces many dangers. And one of the dangers in which Ulysses faces are the songs of the sirens. These beautiful and beguiling women who, who sing upon the, the rocky shore and their song is so mesmerizing. They, they mesmerize the sailors and the sailors will steer the ship towards the rocks and then, then run aground and they all drown in the sea. 
Well, Ulysses knew of the sirens. He knew of the danger they presented, but he longed to hear them sing. And so what he did is he filled his sailors' ears with wax so they couldn't hear, but he kept his ears unplugged, and then he tied himself to the mast with ropes. He knew he was going to go insane. He said, whatever I do, don't listen to anything I say, but I want to hear the song. And of course, they did, and they sailed through safely, even though Ulysses wanted to go to them so desperately. Well, there's another story of the sirens, and this one has, is about Jason, the leader of the Argonauts. He, too, faced their alluring song, but he didn't use rope and wax to overcome them. He brought with him a man named Orpheus. And Orpheus was a musician that was so talented that, the, that they, they would say he could move mountains and tame beasts. And, and so when they come on, on the sirens, they begin to sing, and the sailors become to become mesmerized. Orpheus begins to play his music, and his greater music breaks the spell of the sirens, leaving Jason unmoved by their singing. You see, I, I think this is helpful for us to think by way of illustration, that if you try to put the sin to death by filling your ears with the wax of rules and tying yourself up with the ropes of religious regulations, you're going to fail. Your heart should be captivated by a greater song, by a greater love. Set your hearts on things above. We should be laboring and fighting to do so every day. I'll tell you, there is no greater love. There is no greater love that pursued us when we were wayward. There is no greater compassion that came for us when we were helpless. There is no greater mercy that dies for our wickedness. There are no greater gifts than the indwelling spirit of God, the inheritance of a new earth, the coming glory, the, the purpose in life, the fellowship with Jesus. There's no greater sacrifice than the scoffing and the scourging and the spitting and the mocking and the crown of thorns and the nails in his hands. There is no greater faithfulness that you will find than the one who said, no matter what you do, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you always to the very end. My brothers and sisters in Christ, set your hearts on things above. Therefore, put to death that which is earthly in you. Our Father in heaven, we pray ultimately for superior desire and delight in Jesus. That he, we would love him so much that the allure and promise of rebellion would have no sway upon us. It would conquer the mesmerizing song of sin. I pray that you would help us to have the courage to be able to tap a brother or sister on the shoulder or set up an appointment and say, I need your help. I so much want to get rid of this in my life. And yet it seems to have such control. And that together we would labor for Christ's likeness as we help one another to find our hope Indeed, our love, our security, our meaning, our fulfillment in Christ. Help us to uproot the idols that lead us into sin, even as we seek after our Lord Jesus. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.